we have to grieve a loss. In many instances, it's a loss, a relationship that went bad, a toxic relationship, a situation where a person has been mistreated or abused. And it's important in that work to strengthen a person's ability to discriminate past from present. What happened to me 20 years ago is 20 years ago. Yeah. What happens to me now is not what happened to me 20 years ago. Different people, I'm a different person. So there's work that can strengthen the ability to separate past from present. You know, past is sneaky. It piggybacks on the present <clears throat> without being known. It's like, shh. <laughs> I'm, I'm controlling the present future doesn't do that you know future tends to stay at a distance right but the past the past is dying to be a part of the present and it's very important in life to differentiate those two hey everybody and welcome to or welcome back to the mental purpose podcast i'm your host ian lobos look today we're going to get deep real deep and i tell you every time I want to make sure you know that you are going to get value out of this thing because I don't want to waste your time and I don't want you wasting your time listening to some shit that you don't need. On this episode, we're getting deep, psychologically deep, brain wiring deep, trauma deep. I, we're, we're getting deep. And um, the psychiatrist and or the psychologist and psychoanalyst that I have on, Dr. Thomas Jordan, he is, he is going to do so much deep diving very quickly. It's almost like a deep dive buffet and into the human experience of love and intimacy and grief and patterns and traumas and validation and sabotage and all the stuff that you guys are going through. All of us are going through. And so let me give you a couple of things that we're going to go over. I'm going to talk to you about, I'm going to tell you about Thomas Jordan, then we're going to roll. So what is needed to have a good relationship? We're going to talk about what love actually is, examples of sabotage. We're going to talk about consciousness, willingness, independency, control, uh, experience of the life and the psychology goes around it. We're going to talk about changing your love life by changing your psychology. We're going to be talking about thoughts that are healthy and unhealthy. I'm going to be talking about helping people who suffer and helping yourself as you're suffering, sharing your emotions with your child and the, the benefits and the dangers there, starting on your journey of self-healing, uh, kindness, your professional life being high and your personal life being low. A lot of you guys are going through that and, and we're going to get really deep into that. We're going to figure out what wakes people up from their old patterns. We're going to deal with loneliness, wasting time, the importance of intimacy, getting trust back in a relationship with yourself and with others. Uh, we're going to talk about caution and paranoia, letting go of the past, the opposite of love, and why, why schools should teach love and grief, in addition to a ton of other stuff. So let me tell you real quick about Dr. Thomas Jordan. He's a, a clinical psychologist, psychoanalyst in a private practice in New York City. He's on the faculty of NYU's postdoctoral program in psychoanalysts or psycho psychoanalysis the author of Learn to Love, A Guide to Healing Your Disappointing Love Life, and the founder of the Love Life Learning Center. Dr. Jordan specializes in the treatment of unhealthy love lives, and he's been studying them for over 30 years. This conversation is awesome. You're going to get so much out of this. 
like I always do encourage you, I'm going to encourage you to get a pen, get a paper, stop what you're doing, chill out and just take notes because something in this episode, it's designed to hit you the way it does, right? You're designed to notice it. So when you're listening to these, don't worry about everything. Be non-distracted and available to pick up that one big thing that, that makes a difference in your formula or maybe two things. So remember, you want more information, you want, do you want to get a hold of me? You want to get more help? Do you want to be a part of what we've got going on? Everything we've got is at the Men on Purpose world, which is menonpurpose.net, menonpurpose.net. You can find out more about our Men on Purpose community. You can join one of our masterminds, which are self-paced and they've got group coaching element to them and they're freaking powerful. You've got our, our retreats that are starting to come up. You can get really deep, 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 deep work done in a very fast amount of time. So if you're sitting there going, man, I need this and I need this quick, our retreats are perfect for that. And we've got all kinds of free giveaways on our website, right? We've got our purpose-driven formula, a little mini course, an ebook. We've got an assessment coming out soon to know how to go from replaceable to irreplaceable. And if you are a replaceable person, all kinds of cool stuff. So join us. We love having you here. Super appreciative of, of all your love and support over the years that Men on Purpose has now been around. And we're here for you if you need us. Okay. Enjoy this episode. Okay. So we're gonna get we're gonna get into some deep stuff today. And I'm I'm uh I'm really excited because as we were explaining before I started recording, this is so many men out there. My practice, your practice this, we're dealing with this issue and you and I used to be those guys. So let's go back to that place when you were that guy who was driven by the career and, and starting to have misfires in the personal life. How would you describe that, by the way, how would you describe that time of your life? Uh, well, I started out, um, taking care of my mother emotionally. <laughs> I was one of four sons. I was her confidant. Uh, she would talk about all the emotional issues that she was struggling with. And uh, it kind of grew from there. You know, I mean, I'm not sure she was a successful treatment case. <laughs> but uh, the point is, I became interested in the emotional life and so on. And it went from there to hospital jobs and clinic work and then graduate school, postgraduate, and then private practice here in, in Manhattan. Um, so a lot of my life was spent really uh, amb ambitious, uh, working towards goals <clears throat> in the profession, <clears throat> maximum independence, um, big practice, writing books. Um, and then when I got to about 32, 31, 32, in my personal analysis, somebody pointed out to me, what's going on in your love life? And I've uh, what I call a disappointing love life. The evidence was there relationship after relationship, nothing really uh, deep enough, nothing uh, enduring enough, disappointing endings. And uh, at one point, my analyst said to me, it looks like you're using a lot of what your mother taught you in your love life. And I was like, what? And my mother, she taught me three things about eligible women. They're dependent, controlling, and self-centered. Hmm. And she was struggling with those qualities herself in her life. And that's the kind of woman I ended up with over and over and over again. Uh, disappointment after disappointment. So when I realized that, 
I started really understanding that in order to have a relationship, I had to work on my love life. And that's an important statement. Work on your love life. Instead of feeling like it's just something that happens automatically, I began to look into it. Um, I've been studying and treating unhealthy love lives for over 30 years. And I've reached a conclusion that most of us are not in control of our love lives. And what I mean by control is understanding what the issues are that replicate and dominate. <clears throat> and what I realized, which was a very important realization, both in my personal life as well as professional life, is that what I had learned about love relationships in my life, starting from the beginning, unconsciously, that's important, unconsciously, was dominating my love life, and it was unhealthy, what I had learned. So becoming conscious of what I had learned and beginning a change process became very, very important. And that's when things changed. Love I'm that. now a happily married man of 28 years. Uh, I, my wife is also a psychotherapist. She in the office next to me. And that's as a consequence of making changes. So I, uh, I, I came to the point, I realized I want to write a book that people can use, simple, direct, use as a guidebook to begin the conscious work of looking and working on their love lives. When you say love life, are you talking about love in general, love of others, love of self, love of your job, love of anything? Or are you talking about okay. sex? All yeah, 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 yeah. In, in the preface of the book, I, I, it's an important statement. I say, this book is not about love. <laughs> that unpredictable, uncontrollable, wonderful emotion, who knows where it comes from, right. that we human beings can experience. No. This book is about love relationships. The relationships we form when we fall in love, healthy or unhealthy. You form a healthy one, you grow love. You form an unhealthy one, you stifle and destroy love. And unfortunately, there are plenty of people, and I was seeing them in my practice over and over again, that destroy love each time they fall in love. Like self-sabotage? All kinds of sabotage. In fact, I listed 10 in the book. I got 12 now. Things like abandonment, abuse, neglect, um, rejection, self-centeredness, dishonesty. These are relationship experiences that we can have in life that teach us unconsciously lessons that get replicated we recreate experience over and over again by what we've unconsciously learned. Uh, and, and just the list kept showing up over and over and over and over again. And if you ask me, uh, what's a definition of love life? What kind of definition are you using? I would say love life starts the moment you're born. Any and all relationships involving the emotion of love teach you things about love relationships. And that learning, unconscious learning, simply from experience, can be replicated over and over and over again in your love life. And if it's healthy, fine, man. No problem. Yeah. You know, no problem. You're going to replicate what's healthy. Beautiful. If it's unhealthy, I'll give you an example of how conscious it is. Woman shows up in my office, early 50s, uh, initial intake. Tell, talk about the history and so on. She tells me, grew up in a home with an alcoholic father, abusive man, physically abusive guy. Uh, me and my sibs watched it happen, my mother getting beat up. Okay, take the history, 
What's going on in your love life now? Well, I divorced two men. Oh, by the way, they were alcoholic and abusive. Mm -hmm. And my boyfriend is an alcoholic and he's starting to get abusive. And I asked this question. Do you think there's a relationship between where you grew up and what's going on in your love life? And I'll never forget the look she gave me. What? Sounds so simple, doesn't it, though? Yes, simple, but these familiarities, and I I like to think of that as a kind of dirty word, you know, families in the middle of it. It can be a good word or a bad word. Yeah. Familiarity can be very unconscious. And when it is, the learning is in charge of the experiences that we have over and over again. (laughs) We shape them. You know, it's a realization about people that I'm fascinated with. We're, We're very creative beings. I mean, look at the room you're in. I know. How many people created the various items in that room? Well, my room, plenty, maybe yeah. thousands. Yeah. We also create mentally, psychologically. Yeah. And to understand what we're creating from a psychological perspective, imagine how powerful that is. Yeah. And I think learning is the fundament of that. Learning is the foundation of that. What's up, guys? I'm so sorry to interrupt the episode. I just need one minute to share with you all the new and exciting, amazing stuff we've got created here at Men on Purpose. First of all, thank you for listening to the podcast and supporting the movement we're creating for all the men in the world. Next, you've got to check out our new website, menonpurpose.net, where you'll find all kinds of cool stuff, including links to our podcast and the free Men on Purpose community. You're also going to find our new free purpose-driven formula mini course and ebook and links to all of our new coaching programs and products. Look, I've had so many of you ask me where to get started with your personal growth journey or where you can go to level up. So I put this thing together, this free ebook and mini course, and we're going to be talking about and coaching you through a really light version of our purpose-driven formula, which is our foundational formula. And for those of you who are ready now, we got you. Listen up, whether it's becoming the best husband, being the best dad, quitting that job that doesn't serve you, or just understanding how to put you first, we've got what you need to align with your authentic self and find that true fulfillment and live a life with no regrets. Look, we're helping men with structure, support, and sustainability. That's what you've asked for, and that's what we deliver. As we lead you through proven and tested curriculum that focuses on formulas to help you get farther faster. So make sure you go to menonpurpose.net, click the button to download our free, powerful, purpose-driven formula mini course and ebook. And while you're there, make sure you check out some of our amazing products designed to help you find your purpose, stop self-sabotage, and dial in your mindset, skills, and habits to evolve into the best version of you. Why? because we want you to live and have the best life possible. No regrets. So mentalpurpose.net, let's get back to the episode. What about, what about, so it, it makes sense that there's a replication of, you know, alcoholic father, alcoholic boyfriends and husbands, and, and, and there's no, there's no, there's no foundation set. It's just one to the next, to the next, to the next. Uh-huh. That makes sense. Like it's what people are attracted to without knowing yeah. why. What about the opposite? I want to get your take on that. What about someone that grew up with a, um, you know, an, an a, a alcoholic abusive father and is now attracted naturally attracted to someone who's calm and just very serene? Or what about someone who had a very calm and, and serene, you know, father, but is now attracted to someone who's crazy? What, how does that work? Because well, that's not something we I, talk about a lot. No, I think there's, lots of variation and and the patterns aren't rigidly set uh i've met plenty of people who have recognized the abuse 
that has taken place in their early life, and they dedicated themselves to not repeating it. And they didn't. What's the and difference in that person, though? What's the well, difference? There? Okay. Now, my personal professional opinion is consciousness. Hmm. Go, do, I think dig, consciousness dig is an incredibly powerful phenomenon. When we see something, we can do something about it. We don't see it, we can't. So the first step in my book, I call it the unlearning method, right? Once you be, the first step is always, it's a three-step process. The first step is always to become aware of what you've learned about love relationships. That awareness permits you to begin to see what has, has to change. And it's a powerful issue, a powerful function. It's a wonderful asset. And there are plenty of people that come to that consciousness casually. Uh, they come to it naturally, uh, not necessarily in therapy or counseling. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a human thing. That's yeah. the way I look at it. And then that there are those people that still may be conscious of it, yet they're not willing to do something about it. Is okay, that why willing, you see someone who's willing? Willing is a uh, will. You introduce will. Will is decision. Yeah. Will is uh, uh, deciding not to for whatever reasons, and there could be you know psychological reasons people don't want to do anything about it. For example, I mentioned the word familiarity. I'm sure there are plenty of people in the world that, when you ask them, you know, what's going on? Who taught you about love relationships? My family, good or bad, that's my family. That's sure. what I'm going to do, period. End of story. Yeah, that's interesting. So when you got to that point in your 30s, let's go back to that place. Where, yeah. what, what happened in that, in that space? What happened in your head? What was happening in your life? Yeah, well, the, the shock of hearing my analyst, who was a pretty upfront guy, like to get into the confrontational aspects that are involved in like denying reality or whatever, whatever <laughs> thing makes floats your boat, you know, uh, he'd jump in. He, and I, I love them for that, you know? And so when he pointed out, Hey, uh, you're using mom. And that was a bit of a shock, you know? And, and the, the good news was that he introduced the idea that something was learned. So I felt like, okay, that's a user-friendly concept. Like we right. learn from the beginning of life. Like if it's learned, it can be unlearned. But I, I had to deal with this issue. Like what, what did I learn and how did I learn it? So it became a self-study supported by my work in treatment to understand what I had learned. So I backed off of relationships for a while, dating, um, I grew up in a family with three brothers. I have no sisters. So the funny thing happened to me, I gravitated towards female friends. Yeah. And it almost felt like an internship. <laughs> <laughs> like I had to study women. And I yeah. had to differentiate between women who are dependent, controlling, self-centered, and the opposite. Like, where are the independent, not controlling intimate women who are not self-centered or narcissistic you know so i had it was five years long and i had a very close female friend no romance no sex we hung out together uh, maybe she was a pseudo sibling or something that i added to my experience but at the end of that period it's funny thing i knew my wife victoria for six years she is independent 
not controlling and intimate. And she showed up. She called me. We started to date. She moved in. We lived together for a year and a half. And then we got married. I've been married 28 years. I have a kid, 24 years old, a son. And I changed something in my head that made receptivity to a different type of person who was, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying bad things about dependent, controlling, and narcissistic people. They're just not ready for relationship. Sure. Right. I'm talking about people who are ready for relationship. When you become ready for a relationship, it's a, it's a change of venue. It's something that changes in your brain, in your mind, in your spirit. And you, I guess, Victoria and I, we knew each other for six years. She could have married somebody else, but there was still something curiosity there. I don't know. And she called and that was it. We started up. That's super cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love how that happens. I want to ask you something I was thinking about your, this, I, I, I listened to the podcast, how I built this on NPR. It's not on NPR. It's an NPR podcast. Uh-huh. And it, and it, there's a common pattern when these, these giant moguls and these, these category disruptors or category inventors of their, these people invent these categories or break these categories open there's this common pattern that they were motivated by something that their parents did and it locked in at like 8 10 12 years old so when 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 you talk about when you talk about you changed your mind are you talking about neuroplasticity or are we talking about some basic stuff are we talking about the base the, the real deep chemicals wiring when you say you changed your mind well, I, my, my preference, my tendency is to stick with the psychology. I think psychology is up and coming. Neuroscience is beautiful. I'd like some more answers about the relationship between psychology and neuroscience. But I'm a, I'm a psychologist and a psychoanalyst by uh, training. My interest is in understanding how the psychology of a person creates their experiences. And uh, interpersonal relationships are a big part of that. That's that. I think there's a lot of work to do there. I mentioned just a little while ago, the creativity that's largely unconscious and how that can really structure a person's life. People shape experiences that are unhealthy over and over again. They recreate them. I use that word a lot in my book. They recreate, recreate the disappointing love life over and over again. And they don't know why it shows up in the repetition of disappointments. It shows up in this unconscious replication as if the past learning experiences are like blueprints. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? In fact, in my book, I, I like to, I introduce the concept of the psychological love life to really put people's focus on what's going on inside their psyche. You know, it's interpersonal process is cool. It's really wonderful. It's beautiful. It's great stuff to talk about. But I want people to change their love life based on changing their psychology, because the changes they make there are permanent and involve the work you do on yourself. That's where I that's where I think the the fundamental changes in a love life can take place. And again, the beautiful thing is it's a learning experience. So learning is super, super friendly. 
when you talk about learning, people don't feel stupid. They don't feel like, you know, you're talking about some abstract stuff. They, sure. it's, it's, it's real, you know, okay. Unlearn, unlearn in my, in my unlearning method in the book, I talk about consciousness. Step one, understand what you've learned. Step two, challenge it. It's so, you know, we have a wonderful capacity to have two thoughts in mind at the same time. Yeah. What, what we've attached to and the thought that it's unhealthy. <laughs> and it produces what I like to think of as a therapeutic conflict, right? It's like, okay, I'm in the stage now where I, I've been practicing something that I learned early in life that's unhealthy. I didn't know it was unhealthy. And now I got a new idea in my mind that's saying, this is unhealthy. Even though mom taught me it, it's producing bad results. I have to change it. I have to yeah. confront the fact that it's familiar and I'm attached to it. That's a wonderful precondition to change that a human being can have psychologically. Whereas that therapeutic conflict stage three, step three is to correct it. And correction occurs when we seek the opposite experience. If we grow up with neglect and abandonment, which too many people have suffered early in life, and find unavailable partners or partners that abandon them or they abandon, yeah. which can be a lesson that they've learned from abandonment. So uh, the point is the opposite is commitment. So devoting oneself to commitment and attachment, understanding what does a person that possesses the capacity for relationship commitment look like, feel like, sound like. And when you interest the person in that, and they seek their opposite, then you're allowing, you're, you're giving the tools to a person to shift their love life in a new direction. That's what I did. I found an independent, not controlling, intimate woman. Yeah. And she was unfamiliar. Yeah. Yeah. To me, made me anxious, broke new ground. Told the shrink, oh, God, I met a woman. I'm, I, I'm nervous. I'm nervous. <laughs> She's going to move in. Like, What were you, you nervous know? about? Were you nervous oh, that you couldn't oh. handle it? That well, 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 okay. I'm a, living as a bachelor, right? I ran, running a clinic in Queens, plenty of money. I had a great life. I'm out of graduate school. Finally, no more no more noodles for dinner. And I'm in my 30s, you know, women around. And... I wanted to have a good time. So here I fall in love and my bachelor pad on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Okay, she's moving in. And I'm telling my shrink, you know, I'm, this makes me nervous. He asked that question, what makes you nervous? I say, she'll hurt me. You know what he says? And this is a classic line. I think it's in my book. I, I tell people that I love this is classic line. He says to me, where'd you get the idea you could be in love and not get hurt? <laughs> That's true. That's a really great line, actually. Shit. I'm like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I've been defensive and trying to control this situation for so long so I won't be vulnerable. And this guy's telling me I got to be vulnerable to be in love. And then the idea pops in my mind and we have a conversation about it that what I need to feel is a faith that I can heal the hurt when it occurs. If I have a faith that I can heal the hurt, 
then falling in love is not so scary. And that's what I worked on. And it worked out. We fell in love. And I mean, it's not been perfect, but it's endured 28 years and I don't plan going anywhere. <laughs> you know, what's, what's interesting is uh, I totally ADD'd out <laughs> when I was asking you that question before. <laughs> on, the, on the how I built this podcast, um, they... The, these people that have made major movements, right, in the world, in business, um, who don't have the experience and didn't set out to do that, they all have a pattern where they reference a childhood experience that completely changed them. And I remember listening to, um, to Rick Steves, specifically Rick Steves, the travel guy. Okay. And he said his, his dad was a piano tuner. Uh -huh. And they went over to Europe to go to the factory because his dad was going to start um, importing and, and distributing these pianos. And he remembered how much he felt trapped because at that point in the 60s, the child's passport was embedded into the parent's passport. So children uh -huh. didn't have their own passport. And all he kept thinking as a, as a young boy, right, as, a, as like, a, like 10 years old, let's say, was when I have my own passport, I can go anywhere I want and I won't be under this, this, this tyranny, so to speak. Uh -huh. Right. And that entire, that entire thought process still uh -huh. is his obsession today. And the guy's running a hundred million dollar a year enterprise. And it was that thought process that he said was the turning point. And he said, any chance he got, didn't matter what he had to do when he got that passport it was a passport to freedom and Absolutely. europe and europe yeah. was the freedom and so uh -huh. i i think about that when you described in in the beginning of this of this conversation the challenges and the things you had to do with your mom and the things that you learned of course you're gonna that that's your that's your wiring of course you're gonna seek that out right you think uh -huh. that's normal what what was your what were your thought processes in, in that? Are you, I'm, I'm imagining you were a kid, right? You were young when you were doing with that stuff. Absolutely. Uh, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Yeah. Uh, Is that I, what still just continues to motivate you and motivate well, you through school and all I that? I wanted to help my mom. Yeah, that's what she I mean. She was suffering. She was unhappy. No one else was listening to her. Um, she couldn't talk to anyone else about what she was going through in the family. She felt controlled. She never separated from her parents. They lived upstairs. Oh. Her grandfather had a family business. My father worked for him and she was embedded. She was the only daughter. Five siblings died in childbirth and oh. uh, in miscarriage. Uh, and they held on to her. You can't yeah. leave. You're, you're, these, are, these are first generation my parents are first generation from the Azores Islands. Yeah. Um, and it was like, you know, my grandfather was a totalitarian fellow. Yeah. You know, the suspenders, the straw hat, two-tone shoes. Like, yeah, we come to America. He made a good life for the family. He had some cash, you know, but he controlled his daughter and kept her in one place. And she suffered from that. And mm -hmm. I was the one she spoke to. So I guess what was happening to me is I started becoming interested in the emotional life of people, like to understand it. I yeah. started reading psychoanalytic books when I was a teenager. I mean, it's like, you know, I, I, 
I hid them up in the attic. <laughs> you know, like I, I think I felt a little bit of a, of a guilt feeling. You know, there's a, uh, there's a phrase for that experience. Uh, I became aware of it later in life, in my professional life. It's called parentified child. Hmm. When a child is given responsibility to parent a parent, it's called parentified child. So as my mother's confidant, my mother's listener, I was sacrificing my own needs, but I was also providing her with the emotional yeah. support. Yeah. And in my personal therapy, I had to become aware of how I had to get my needs back. That was a very big psychological task that I had, that I had to reestablish that in adulthood. But um, in a way, I learned how to be a therapist early. Yeah. Is it healthy to share your feelings and emotions with your child? Like, where's the, where's the, the, the uh, line, the line of you're giving them way too much yeah. and they're going to traumatize them or, and, and, you know, behind the line, which is it's healthy to share this with them. So they understand that you feel this and you can help them feel their stuff. Where, where, where's that line? Is that healthy uh, in general? How you share it, what you share questions like that would answer your question. Um, if you're sharing it because you're dependent and self-centered, it's unhealthy. If you're sharing it to teach your kid about life and you're not asking anything of them, that's different. That's okay. parenting. Pretty deep stuff to teach our kids about emotion and the mind. So, but that's not, that was not the condition. My mother was needy, dependent, yeah. Yeah. suffering. Yeah. And yeah. you know, what's interesting is, is I've been a huge Howard Stern fan for my whole life. He talks a lot about that when, when he's kind of, when he's not joking around, when he talks between those lines, uh -huh. he tells you how much his mom dumped on him and, yeah. and shared dumped. with him about her dumped is a good word, right? That's the operative word mm -hmm. dumped on him and, and, and put that pressure on him to try and help her because she was so depressed and she felt like she had nothing going on in life except yeah. for this one role that she was failing at. Yeah. And there's so many women out there. I get to deal with their, I'm dealing with their husbands in, in my, in my business. And there's so many women out there that feel that they don't have anything else except for this identity that was created for them. Granted uh -huh. wife and mother was, was their choice. However, what, what does that person do? Right. You can't dump on your kids and, you gotta, you gotta love yourself enough to go get help in therapy. What does that person do? What's a, what's a step-by-step -step that that person could do to start their journey of, of self healing or self realization? Well, they have to, they have to recognize that there are emotions, emotional experiences that are telling them separation is needed. Because if you have a parent, a family that's uh, predicting what you who you are, what you're going to be. They're not leaving much room for your individuality, yeah. which is fundamentally unique. You know, the yeah. greatest gift you can give your kids as a parent is a recognition of their unique individuality. And, you know, instead of rushing in to tell them who they're going to be and how they're going to be it, you wait to receive some 
kind of information from your kid about what turns them on, what where their true self is located. So that process, I mean, I had to separate from my family uh, under parental duress. <laughs> my father was more supportive. My mother was not. My mother was upset when I left home. I left home at 20 to go to college. I never came back. She was upset. She was losing her confidant. Yeah. My father, who I got real close to because we were fishing buddies, he uh, he recognized that um, I needed to leave home and go to uh, uh, the college of my choice. And that I did. And he supported it. I mean, as I was leaving, I could only think, oh, God, what kind of hell is he going to catch for that yeah. particular, <laughs> the help he gave me? Okay, Dad, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, behind closed doors must have been tough for old Dad. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. Uh, and was there a, was there a point in, in, your, in your career where you just, you know, like we were talking about earlier, where you realized I've... I've achieved so much yet. My personal life just, I want you to kind of go back to that. Like my personal life just isn't there. What is going on with me? Yeah, that was, that was the thirties in the mid thirties. I had reached a point where I <clears throat> recognized that relationship and companionship was missing from my life. I had pretty much everything else except that. And when I was doing this work that I've described to you in therapy, uh, it kind of helped me go in the direction of realizing that I had to change something, some kind of expectation that relationship and companionship are really on a different track than having fun, sexual one night stands, have fun, drinking, partying, uh, nightclub life, all of that good stuff. But I reached the point in my middle 30s where I wasn't interested anymore. And I had friends that were kind of focused on that kind of life, you know, work for the weekend, this kind of thing. Yeah. And the women and the people that frequented the places I would go to, I started to look at them a little bit differently. And I withdrew from that and began thinking about, you know, meeting people that were a little bit more substantial in their interests. You know, I think people are along a continuum. You know, it's almost like a, some people move, they move slowly, takes time, they play in their 20s, they get to their 30s, they start thinking about relationship, or they get to their 40s. 40s is a great decade to make changes, you mm -hmm. know? I, I realized a few years ago that I have a lot of people in, my, in the 40s in my practice, like, you know, like, a, if you want to put it on a graph, 20s, yeah. 30s, 40s. <laughs> <laughs> it is a life, you know? <laughs> you know, I think it gets to, like, I'll be 40 in December. And, uh -huh. and, and, and getting to this place that I'm, I'm helping a lot of guys out that are around my age. And I feel like I've broken through so much stuff. I broke through that stuff in my thirties and I see this pattern of dependency on other people, on substance, on uh -huh. exterior things uh -huh. in a lot of people in their mid thirties to mid forties. Uh -huh. How does somebody like what you're talking about is you're partying, you're drinking, you're having fun. And then all of a sudden you go, I need, this got change. Yeah. And if and, you, if I could answer that question, my yeah. God, <laughs> a <laughs> Ted talk would come right away. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, I think 
that's a particular experience for a particular person. Like why people wake up and how they wake up and yeah. what makes them wake up. It's really hard to say it always happens this way or that. It's got to be pain, right? It's got to uh, have some. Well, it's got to have something to do with pain. Uh, pain is one thing. Uh, loss, need, words like that probably fit in. Uh, repetition, doing something over and over again till it's terrible. <laughs> and it's like you know, repetition in and of itself shows you you're stuck. So that can be a mover and shaker right there. Um, I think there's a readiness concept that's not easy to define. Sure. You know, when I was ready for relationship, there was a seriousness about it. You know, like I didn't want to be alone anymore. I had two cats in my apartment. That was not good enough. You know what I mean? <laughs> I have nothing against cats. I'm a cat lover, but you know, <clears throat> or the, the the faithful dog, you know. I mean. Come on. I, it was just, it was an interesting change of mind. Uh, loneliness might be a part of it. Letting yeah. loneliness become part of one's awareness. And being you okay know? with it. Okay with it and learning from it. It's like, what does my loneliness tell me? Yeah. My, I mean, I, I try to distract from it. I, I, I numb with substances like you mentioned, big problem. Because when you're numb, you're not feeling. No. Feelings are important. You you, you got to use them. They're information. What about know? what about trading loneliness for from the the party scene? Um, like somebody says, I don't want to be lonely, so I'm going to stay in the party scene. Yet the party scene, they know they're not into anymore. Yet they don't uh -huh. want to be lonely, right? So mm -hmm. there's this there's this. Um, I talked to a couple of guys over the years that say it's really hard to break free from this cycle because this is like they're like my family. They're filling this massive void. I know I need different. I know I want different. I know I deserve different. Yet it's so hard to leave the the party, so to speak, with these people and and these activities. And if I if I do that just to follow my own dream and passion. I'm literally letting all of that go and I'll be lonely out in the sea by myself, having to figure it out on my own. Uh -huh. And they won't leave because of that yet. They know that they have uh -huh. to, and they're just stuck in yes. this. Resistance. Yeah. Yeah. If I, if I had such a person in my office, say, you know, in a therapy, what I would do is listen carefully to how they are trying to address their loneliness in that party lifestyle. So you understand it. Mm -hmm. But my attention would go to the word different. Yeah. You said, this guy says, I keep that going because I don't want to be lonely. I know I need something different. See, when you said that, that statement went, whoa. Yeah. Because I'm going to say, wait, 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 wait. What's different? What is it? What do you need? And help that guy focus on that word. I want verbiage. I want words. I want you to tell me, what do you need that you're keeping on the periphery? I want the guy to say to me, all right, all right, all right. I need a woman by my side. I need a man by my side. I need life. I need a life. I need people that think about me when the night's over that come with me, that sleep in my bed. I need intimacy. Yeah. And, and that words like that 
now I'm, I'm saying, okay, look, let's land on that. I know you want to do this party stuff. That's fine. That's fine. Okay, come in, continue. But when we get done studying that word intimacy, he's not going to want the party life. He's yes. going to say to himself, holy crap. I mean, I really see the difference. That word difference has grown and grown and grown and yeah. grown. And the motivation to look for intimacy is grown. It's like, okay, where is this intimacy? How do I find it? Who can provide it? What's the difference between this person and the party person? Questions like that. Now we're doing the type of study that empowers people to say, okay, I'm going to stop wasting my time over here. And I'm going to look for this intimacy. Let me join a club. Let me do what I like and meet some people through that. Let me see if I can find the different people, the people that think about substance and relationship and are not numbed out from alcohol or drugs. Let me do that. And that's where yeah. I would go. It's, it's, like a, it's like building something. You're building a person's awareness of the importance of intimacy. And they give you a little sign by saying that statement. I do want something different, but I still need to practice that playful stuff. Okay, let me focus that statement you just made how about people that <clears throat> how does how does someone get that self-trust in them to actually trust themselves to make that move and know they're not cutting off what looks like a lifeline and then actually pursue this thing because they feel it in their bones that this is the right way to go yet they're terrified to be alone but they know that they don't want to spend the rest of their life doing this so how does someone gather self-trust or just trust in general well, I, it's a, I believe it's a process. For example, um, I, would, I would also question, um, aren't you alone in your party life? Yeah. I mean, yeah. look, man, I can drink all night and be alone. I can, I can be surrounded by people and be alone. Sure. I can be dancing on a dance floor and be alone. Yeah. I could sleep with somebody and they go home and I'm alone. Yep. So these, you know, it looks like these people are satisfying some need for others. But in reality, what's really being talked about is intimacy. Intimacy is the cure for loneliness. That's the cure. Intimate relationship where you're sharing something you're sharing a relationship with another person that loves you cares for you uh, it's a mutual thing it's intimate by the way uh, the intimate relationship is the best relationship to grow love think of love as a plant the intimate relationship uh, when i came up with the 12 different relationships that teach us bad things in life about love relationships I realized that, and I talk about this at the end of the book, I realized that the opposites, when you list the opposites, all those opposites provide a nice comprehensive definition of the intimate relationship, hmm. you know, free, respectful, committed, devoted, mutual. These are honest. These are all words that give 
they, they provide markers to understand what an intimate relationship feels like. So it's very interesting, you know, the opposite of some of these unhealthy experiences is really a wonderful concept. Correction comes when we seek the opposite of something we've been able to identify as unhealthy. When somebody breaks trust, whether it's in themselves or somebody else or like their intimate partner or whatever it might be, is, can you get that back? Because And I'll give you an example. When, when there are guys that come to me and say, you know, when we're talking about sabotage, self-sabotage, and they'll say, I, you know, every time this happens, I go out and do this, or I go out and get a drink, or I go out and use this external thing to avoid dealing with the real stuff I'm supposed to deal with. And what's happened over time is that trust has been eroded and they almost don't trust themselves anymore. And the same thing I find has happened in relationships is that they've done so many things so many times that the trust in the relationship has been eroded. It's not that it's gone. It's that it's been eroded and, and reinforced that it's not solid. Is there a way to get trust back in oneself and in one's relationship? Um getting trust back takes work yeah number one and i would i mean i'm not going to sit here and insult people's intelligence by suggesting it's an easy one trial process and it's not trust um the loss of trust is often based on fear is often based on an anticipation of hurt um we become attached to things that are unhealthy and begin to remain in place because it feels like too much of a risk to do something else. I mentioned earlier that, you know, to trust that you can be in a relationship and get hurt if it happens because yeah. a relationship is uncontrollable. You can't get into a love relationship and control it. So you're taking the risk. You're trusting your own abilities to survive if it's hurtful, if it doesn't, if it leads to disappointment. So that that faith that we can handle risk is going to be an important part of reestablishing trust, whether it's trust of another person. So sure. I love you. And I'm trusting that you're going to be in my life. <laughs> We've set this up. We got property together. We got married. <laughs> We're living together, whatever. When I come home from work, I want to trust that you you haven't like ripped me off, taken all my bank account and left town. You know, I mean, and I have to be at work saying, okay, this person's not going to do that. I can focus on my job, you know, um, or trusting oneself, which is also a form of trust to be, can I be in love? Can I open my heart to this relationship, to this person and trust that I can handle it? Yeah. That it's not going to kill me. It's not going to destroy me. That I can heal, survive, get through it. So what process. What happens when someone does get hurt? Their bank account does get raided by the partner and while they're at work. How do they not go into like a lot of stuff that we discuss is kind of these stories that that we tell ourselves around what happened. And this story that we live with, which doesn't have any validity or evidence, it's just based off of this thing that happened 10, 20, 30 years ago, whatever it is, or uh -huh. yesterday. How does someone protect against that story that, oh, it's going to happen again? I can't trust anybody. You know, you hear those people, those, those naysayers uh -huh. that go, 
Right. Listen, you can't trust women. They're all crooks. Uh-huh. You can't <laughs> trust men. They're all assholes. <laughs> right. You know, like right, right. No, the one I hear is all men are dogs. <laughs> yeah, right, right, all right. Men are dogs. Right. Right. All women are bitches and controlling. <laughs> you know, that's yep. a con there's a common, those are two common, but that one's um. Uh, well, look, you know, now you're talking about the psychology of caution. Uh, and of course, you know, if you take that along the continuum, you get to paranoia. You know, that's when the reality that's involved is really starting to come apart. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, caution in the middle sphere of this, you know, caution is self-protection. You know, in my book, I talk about what's in the psychological love life, that blueprint we keep that shapes our relationship, what you've learned, the experiences that have taught you, and the defenses you've learned to cope with the possibility of hurt. That's yeah. also included. And people have all kinds of defenses. Um, common ones are being in a relationship at a distance. Being in a relationship, fighting all the time, so I won't be vulnerable. <laughs> Armored, you know, if I'm fighting all the time, I need a suit of armor. Um, or avoid love altogether to protect myself. Some people do that. Uh, some people, they have a more sophisticated defense, like I'm going to be in a relationship and I'm going to change you and make you the kind of guy you need to be in this relationship. Or uh, I'm going to have substitute partners and find that ideal partner i'm totally 100 compatible with one after another one after another not on this planet by the way and then of course there's the um multiple relationships at the same time which i tend to feel is a defensive measure because you're not letting any one person yeah deep enough so it tends to spread out the intimacy concerns um so these are ways we protect ourselves the problem here is that people can be so mistrusting that they're devoted to these defenses and when you try to work on your love life it's going to be hard to see the other two parts to the psychological love life what you've learned about love relationships the experiences that have taught you because those defenses those self-protective things we do uh, notorious for blocking out any change in your love life. If you're working on your partner, you're not working on yourself, mm-hmm. for example. How does somebody let go of the the hurt or the pain or the stuff that they've experienced in the past when they're experiencing a new um, situation or they're experiencing something new in a relationship? How can somebody let go of the past so that the past doesn't keep filtering into yeah. the present and right. flooding the lenses of, yeah. of how they're looking at the present right. moment? Exactly, exactly. Um, that tells me when I meet someone with this particular concern, it tells me there's some healing that needs to take place. Uh, more specifically, we have to grieve a loss. In many instances, it's a loss, a relationship that went bad, a toxic relationship, a situation where a person has been mistreated or abused. And it's important in that work to strengthen a person's ability to discriminate past, 
from present. What happened to me 20 years ago is 20 years ago. Yeah. What happens to me now is not what happened to me 20 years ago. Different people. I'm a different person. So there's work that can strengthen the ability to separate past from present. You know, past is sneaky. It piggybacks on the present <clears throat> without being known. It's like, shh. <laughs> I'm, I'm controlling the present future doesn't do that you know future tends to stay at a distance right but the past the past is dying to be a part of the present and it's very important in life to differentiate those two and what happens when people do that work here's the hard part they grieve automatically why because that happened long ago and it's gone. I lost that. By keeping it in my present, I'm not grieving. I'm reenacting. Mm -hmm. I'm replicating. But when I push it there in the process of healing it, I'm going to grieve. And that's good grief. Very good grief, because that's the healing. The grieving is the healing. You know, I uh, in my book, I make a little side point, but I love it, and I, I think a lot about it. The opposite of love, people say, hate. Hate's sick anger. Forget hate. The opposite of love is grief. You love somebody, you can lose somebody. They can die. They can fall out of love. The risk we take when we love someone, the vulnerability we experience is grief. Yeah. When it's time to grieve someone you've loved, it's like love turned upside down. The more you grieve for someone, the more you've loved them. Grief is as natural as love. Unpredictable, uncontrollable, but we can do weird things to it, just like we can do to love. Yeah. That make our lives unhealthy. In fact, if you would ask me, what can I do about this? I would suggest the school system in this country make room to teach people about love relationships and how to grieve. Because in this life, you will be faced with both of those. And if you don't know what the hell to do, it guarantees misery. Grief unresolved is the origin of so many symptoms in patients I've worked with. I've been in this office and worked with a person grieving for someone that they lost 30 years ago. Wow. Like that grief has been sitting in the closet, creating so that, that 30 years, it never changed. They're still feeling it like it was the never changed. Absolutely. Imagine that. And, and they don't feel they're more... weeping in my office, crying yeah. in my office about grandma, who was a surrogate mom who died when they were 20 years old, 19, 15 and how important that relationship was. And they never grieved it. It was too painful. So they put it away. Is that because parents just aren't teaching kids how to grieve? 
Obviously, we're not uh, learning it in school. Or is that is there a natural ability to, to know how to grieve? Or do we need to be taught? I think that it's probably a little bit of both. Yeah. If you have a culture where there are rules to grieving, you have to consider those. Like grieving in the middle of your job when your boss is trying to talk to you. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I know what I mean. <laughs> um, but I think grieving, I mean, we grieve. As soon as we show up on the face of the earth, Fair. the first emotion we have when we're born, we grieve the loss of the womb. We <laughs> grieve the detachment from this wonderful place we've been in for nine months. Yeah. So grief is very much part of the, the emotional life of human beings. Um, I got a little story for you. Someone from your neck of the woods, right? Um, in 1972, Leo Buscaglia, ever heard of the name? No. Nope. Okay. Wrote books about love and learning. Leo Buscaglia, emotional Italian guy, a lot of feelings, right? Uh, wonderful teacher, doctor of education, I believe. University of Southern California. A, a girl in his class, young lady in his class, commits suicide over a love life issue. He's distraught. He goes to the administration, 1972, says, I need to teach a love class. My students don't understand love. They laugh at him. Leo, come on. Don't you have better things to do? Love, please. He persists. He persists. He persists. Okay, Leo, you can have a room. No credit. So he teaches it for four years. 100 students each class, standing room only. Wow. I want to ask you a question. Do you think the University of Southern California has a love class on their curriculum in 2022? I certainly <laughs> hope so. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking they that don't. they don't. I'm thinking that they don't. <laughs> Come on. I mean, 100 students standing room only. It brought tears to this man's eyes. The first class he taught, he said, I don't know if I can teach you about love. I don't know if I can do it. We'll do it together, he said to them. We'll learn together. Yeah, uh, he was so moved by the interest. People are interested in love, love relationships, grieving. These are issues that have such an important part in our lives. I totally agree. Well, look, this has been a this has been a really great. I got two pages of notes here that I wrote. Ah. This has been a fantastic <laughs> experience for you. for me, and I know for the audience. So I, I just want to. I want to just give you such gratitude. Really appreciate you being here and giving us so much expertise. Thank yeah. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I had a good time. Uh, I, I love your interviewing style, the spontaneity of it, the Thank free associated associative aspects of it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank yeah. You my so pleasure. I, I, I um, uh, will tell first before I forget, where can people find your book? Uh, on amazon.com if you put the whole title in you get to it easily learn to love guide to healing your disappointing love life it won five book awards i'm really happy with this self-published little book that i wrote i, I didn't know there was so much interest um also i have a website the love life learning center it's no it's not the love life learning center.com uh I put it up in 2012. I wanted it to be a library where people could go and read some very real 
articles about love relationships. I have over 300 articles on there right now. So um, it's, uh, it's interesting that uh, I think there's a lot of people that give me commentary off the website, and I really love it. I yeah. learn a lot over the years from those commentaries. So, yeah. Well, I, I would like to... I'd, I'd like to extend another invitation to come back because I think you Please. and I could we could Absolutely. talk about some some depth in some of these topics we covered. Absolutely. I think we did a we did a nice Please. buffet today. Absolutely. Please. Yeah. I'm going to give you my personal email. I think okay. you might have it already. I'll, D- I'll get that after we after we wrap this. I'll okay. grab that. And then, okay. um, yeah, we can okay. talk more about it. So, look, I just want to thank you again for being here and um, to the audience. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can find everything you need, show notes, everything about Dr. Jordan at mentalpurpose.net. And remember, guys, be purposeful, become irreplaceable. We'll catch you on the next one.